there's actually it's immense value in in meditation practice it's something that we have as part of our daily scheduling clinic um, because there is so much value in it and certainly my own experience similarly to yourself that learning how to meditate was really transformative experience and um you know it's it's challenging but I think ultimately creating space in your day to prioritize your well-being and to have a break from the kind of incessant chatter in your mind um, is is really just a very healing experience. Welcome to today's episode of the Mindful Mindset, a podcast where we speak about mindfulness and mindset and how we can have a more positive outlook on life through a daily mindful practice. Today we have Emmy Brunner on the podcast as a guest. She's a psychotherapist, spiritual recovery coach and mental health speaker. She's also the CEO and founder of the Recovery Clinic in Soho, London. She has over 15 years of experience in the field of mental health and her dream has always been to create a holistic treatment model uh, which is uh, for those of you who don't know how we treat the body mind and spirit all together and their goal within the clinic is to then treat people and not patients which is astonishing and quite excited to see that uh, happy to have you here Emmy. thanks Thank it's really good to be here uh, on the podcast, uh, Black Sheep, you said that you're one to bend or even break the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also say on your website that you are a diehard Bruce Springsteen fan. Uh, would you consider yourself <laughs> to be at first glance? Would Sorry, say again? Uh, which one would you consider yourself be at, to be at first glance? Uh, Bruce Springsteen fan or Black Sheep? Oh, probably a black sheep. <laughs> but that's a tricky one to answer because I do love the boss. Do you want to motivate it? I'm sorry? Do you want to motivate it? How you come to the conclusion of you being a black sheep more than... Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I think uh, after my training, my clinical training, I sort of started um, working and... I just felt really uncomfortable with the treatment settings that I was working in. I didn't, I did, I didn't think people were getting better. Um, and I worked in a residential rehabilitation facility, and I saw people being kind of put into a safe place where they were somewhat stabilised, but really there didn't seem to be much healing. Um, and it felt like there was a real disconnect between the, the treatment model and the, the, the client. Um, and I think it wasn't until I was I, I left and set up my own practice that I gained the confidence to start working a little bit from my gut rather than the rule book, rather than yeah. how I'd been taught. And that steadily sort of developed over a period of time. And then I set up the clinic and sort of the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Has that then affected your like uh, status in the field at all? I think what's 
been interesting is that the 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 way that uh mental health practitioners work in in the UK currently is that they either have a private practice or they uh make referrals to large sort of corporate organizations and I think I've never done that and I've never been paid for referrals and I've never wanted to pay for referrals and I think what that's meant is that I haven't really been part of that club of um clinicians referring to one another and referring to big corporate corporations I I don't do that um so we tend to keep ourselves to ourselves a little bit more so I think um I, I tend to kind of value the relationship that I have with the clients and the people that need our help um as a priority really yeah but you also seem to have a very good relationship with the people you work with as well I have just the most beautiful team and I think what's been very challenging over the years has been to recruit um, a group of people who don't just uh, haven't just got clinical training that are really special human beings as well because you can't train that you can't train somebody to be you know compassionate and kind that I think it's in your bones and the women that work at the clinic are just first and foremost just really kind and compassionate people who are able to support people from a place of non-judgment which I think is such a rare gift um so I value them and the work that they do tremendously do you ever struggle with that like balance of because I can feel that sometimes I can try to be not non-judgmental but then it might come out and be perceived as judgmental I think we're we're all uh, constantly working on trying to be the best that we can be. And I think um, my starting point always is that I'm flawed and not perfect and that I will find that my ego will show up at different points. And I think the best that I can do, in my view, is to continually try and hold myself accountable, to reflect on my behaviour and, you know, to practice love and compassion to myself and to other people and I think that's as good as it's going to get from from my end you know um I don't expect myself to kind of be this perfect being who never messes up or gets anything wrong I just don't think life's like that um and I think in those experiences where we do make mistakes or we do find ourselves you know being judgmental I think they're just opportunities really to learn and to grow um and perhaps reflect on how to do things differently another time yeah because that's so interesting because I feel like it's very like the reflection part of it has been a big part of my mindfulness practice uh and just like understanding certain situations and uh, I think for me also like when I've been working now I work as a youth coach in football uh and having that like feedback as well Mm -hmm. uh to the people I work with uh, has been a big part uh, of me evolving and understanding my communications and how I am perceived by other people. Um, yeah. It's, but it's, it's kind of hard because it become it comes this sort of, am I overthinking it or am I, am I just. I think, a, yeah, I understand what you mean. I think whenever we try and control people's experiences of us, I think we get into kind of sticky ground. I think um, 
being connected to an authentic sense of yourself allows you to show up um, much less self-consciously in relationships with people, whether that's in work or any anywhere really, um, to show up and just trust that you can be yourself and that that will be accepted. I think one of the things that I've recognised and witnessed so so many times over the years is that when when people show up as an inauthentic self, when they're trying to control relationships, people just intuitively don't like it and, and people withdraw. And I think when any of us show up with the good, bad, the ugly, like just as we are as human beings, then that's when we make much more authentic connections with others. Um, and I think that's partly why my clinic has been successful and why I've had a successful career as a clinician because I've always shown up and been as open and transparent about myself and my own journey as I possibly can be um and I think that that translates really so I don't I'm fortunate that I don't have the kind of worry of how I will be perceived I kind of let that go and recognize it's not something for me to try and control yeah I think it's a uh... As you say, like getting past the fact that you can't really control it, um, then where it becomes hard is because communication is always how it's perceived. It's never actually what you say, it's about the other person. Do you ever feel like that's a, a struggle that you have within like communicating with people, especially at the clinic? Um, I think that when, uh, I think one of the, skills I have as a as a person is being able to communicate well with people but what I think I do recognize is that when we're in a very unwell place it can make it very difficult to hear what somebody may be trying to say because we're so kind of invested in our own agenda and our own belief system and I think if we have a narrative that people don't understand us and that we are you know unseen in some way then I think it can be very difficult to shift that when you're trying to speak to somebody and I've certainly had those experiences with working with people when they've been in a particularly unwell place that they've struggled to um, communicate with me or that I've struggled to communicate with them because we have the obstacle of being in a crisis um, and trying to kind of maneuver around that but I think that you know kindness and bit of love always manages to kind of get through even like the toughest walls yeah oh because you work with a lot with patients who suffer from mental health issues uh, uh, how do you feel like uh, since you have this long experience how has that been changed like the discussion of mental health because the thing I've seen a lot is that we don't really speak about youth being mentally ill. Yeah. And as a youth coach, I can like I can see how they can get stressed out from certain situations when they come to practice, but when they leave, they're a bit better. But um, I think the, the thing I'm asking more or less is because, for example, like we have... Um, huge social media platforms that are now emerging like tiktok and you can see there that the hashtags that are mental health and mental health awareness are one of the biggest one it has 2.5 billion views uh so it feels like it's more talked about 
or at least youth are trying to get through or breaking through that sort of barrier of talking about it. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like it's still like there's so much work to be done or? I think there is a lot of work to be done. I think fundamentally people don't understand what causes mental health problems. And I think that really needs to shift. I think even in my clinical training, I wasn't taught about, you know, where these things came from and, and how to resolve them. I was taught a lot of theoretical you know theory and how to be clinically in the room but the 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 person the human being piece I think got got missed and continues to be missed I think young people are much better at creating a conversation and more of an open conversation around mental health but I think because there is a fundamental lack of understanding and insight into why people become unwell it's very difficult for it to kind of progress beyond that point so I think a lot of it needs to be a real psychoeducation um, for people to really benefit from how we can change things. And unfortunately, there isn't an emphasis on kind of emotional intelligence. And in schooling, it's it's a very much a small part of the schooling curriculum uh, for young people to be educated about their mental well-being and how to take care of themselves. Yeah, because that's something I also feel like is that that's where I, I guess I struggle a bit as a, like a coach because I only have the kids for like three hours in practice. So one and a half hour Monday and then Wednesday again. And then it becomes the question like, where should, where is the responsibility then? Is it the schools that see them from eight to five or is it like with the parents and educating or do you feel like it? there is a, is there a lack of responsibility with that as well? Yeah, I think there needs to be a collective responsibility that actually we're all contributing to raising young people um, and for all of us to have a responsibility to become informed so that we can best support them you know, on, how, on that journey and how they evolve and how they develop and, you know, whether that's, you know, a few hours a week with somebody like yourself or whether it's during the school day, I think for that to be a much more um, mindful uh, issue rather than it being something that we're reacting to, that we're reacting to somebody's poor mental health, that we have a much more proactive um, approach to ensuring that young people are able to maintain a kind of more mentally robust state through self-care. I love what you said about reacting because that makes so much sense to me because I practice a lot of um i can't f- remember what the name of the practice is but when you uh is it active listening right when you just listen without responding just like listening and taking in um so that's something i've tried to be more mindful about that we always react on things um but how because you the co- uh, the clinic works with mindfulness practice right yeah we teach mindfulness I think it's a really valuable skill to be able to develop to gain a bit of distance from your thoughts um, but also a bit of uh, time to to reflect without just responding to things as and when they kind of uh, show up in your life you're able to take a step back and really consider how you want to respond rather than just reacting in a moment yeah. uh, because that's something I noticed when I went to 
because uh, I went through a big thing this autumn where I just got burnt out completely and needed to recover. And when I went to see a psychologist through like the medical system, like with uh, that we have in Sweden. Uh, so the thing I realized with that was that as soon as I started doing yoga and meditation, everything sort of just with an anxiety and depression as I was diagnosed with sort of faded away. Uh, of course, I'm on a, like a year subscription of uh, antidepressants, but it's like, it's not deniable that, uh, or you can't deny that meditation and yoga has helped that practice. Um, and this is why I wanted to talk to you because I, I feel like this is not an issue or a sort of medication, I guess, that we speak about when it comes to mental health is mindfulness and meditation because I don't know what it is about it. Maybe you can answer that better than I, but uh, it's just interesting to me that nobody even recommended it or no one said anything about it until I tried it myself and then mm. started to get better. Yeah, I mean, no, there's actually it's immense value in in meditation practice. It's something that we have as part of our daily scheduling clinic um, because there is so much value in it. And certainly my own experience, similarly to yourself, that learning how to meditate was a really transformative experience. And, um, it, you know, it's it's challenging. But I think ultimately creating space in your day to prioritize your well-being and to have a break from the kind of incessant chatter in your mind um is is really just a very healing experience why that is I don't really know but it certainly is and I think as well it allows you to take a step back from um life and to have a moment to reflect on what you're doing and I think so much of the time when I'm working with people I'm really encouraging them to slow down to slow down and to consider their actions, to consider the commitments they're making, you know, are something that's motivated by what they want, what's good for them. Um, and I think so many of us get drawn into life by just living and uh, going about our days without really considering whether what we're engaging in is good for us and whether we're nurturing our well-being. And I think as soon as you create space to begin to do that, you, the mind heals begins to heal mm. it's um it's a good point because i there's so much healing to be done uh just by meditating uh but at the clinic what types of meditations do you do uh we do lots of different things we do a lot of guided meditation um and we tend to respond to what the group are benefiting from at the time. And um, we have different people in clinic all the time. Some people find something much more directive, really helpful. And I think particularly when you've come into clinic and you're in a place of crisis, you're feeling very unwell, um, having something directive, is, it can be quite helpful. So having somebody talk you through a process can be really, really useful. Um, 
and I think listening to the clients listening to what they're finding useful and helpful some of our clients find breath work extremely helpful other people can find focusing on the breath a little bit anxiety provoking because if your breath if if you're breathless and your anxiety manifests very physically sometimes that can be difficult to do um so it's really about abandoning the rule book and exploring what works for you I feel like thinking about about actually what's helpful to me rather than somebody else saying this is how to do it um you know you find your own practice and nurture that yeah i think that connects then to what you're also saying that you treat a patient or you don't treat a patient you treat the person and that's the big thing i recognize is that sometimes we just tend to stick on certain like black and white answers to sort of just respond to whatever is going on and for me it was like getting the diagnosis even made it harder to sort of understand or like it almost created more of it of the feeling of like because when the doctor told me like well you have a a depression and anxiety and we need to treat it with like medication and it's a year, uh, year program. And it just became this weird feeling because I started to feel even more anxious. And I felt more towards the, I guess, patient side on it instead of going towards the feeling of, but I'm getting treatment. Um, but do you think it can go the other way around that if you, that you lose some of some touch of it of like as a like a like when it comes to like a diagnosis if you know uh if you focus too much on the person that's doing some or the one that you're diagnosing uh that it you're not then wondering where i'm going here uh mm-hmm. where, where where it becomes like you lose the sort of diagnosis you don't actually treat the patient. I don't think the diagnosis is uh, necessarily uh, that important. I think what's what's really crucial is thinking about the symptoms that somebody is experiencing, and mm-hmm. you know my ability to diagnose those symptoms. I don't think is necessarily always helpful for people. I think yeah. sometimes people feel comforted by a clinician validating their experience so somebody saying this is a problem this is what's wrong I think people can find that comforting Um, but essentially I think whether it's depression or anxiety what you're describing really are a a number of symptoms that somebody is living with Um, and in my view that's normally in response to struggling to cope with life in some way and so meditation for example or mindfulness are strategies for coping they're strategies for coping with life and really in order to heal what we need to do is to evaluate the destructive coping tools and begin to fill our lives up with more nurturing strategies for living so that the anxiety the depression becomes redundant it no longer is relevant anymore because Uh, we don't need it to survive we're not becoming bogged down in a you know in a negative funk because we're living a much more compassionate existence 
Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I I get where you're coming from because it makes sense to me that um, that we focus on what the person needs. Um, because I felt like when I went to see a psychologist, it was like it's a scheduled forty-five minute uh, meeting, and we just talk for forty-five to forty-five minutes to an hour, and then that's it. And then I go home and then I come back in three weeks. And the questions are like, they're always like formatted towards me. So I feel like there's a connection there, but the touch of like, it feels more that then you get these papers, like here, fill out these, how happy are you on a scale one to 10? And then you're always like, well, I don't know. I have no idea Mm. (laughs) because I think the thing, I think I did realize this after I filled out the form because once I did the form, I was like, well, I guess I'm here sort of. And uh, when I was done with it, I was like, well, I can't even actually remember the last time I felt at a 10 or felt at this level. And I lost touch of that because it became this sort of, the thing was that we wanted a score out of how I'm feeling, but then again, you can't really score something that's an emotion uh, because you can, like, I don't know, it's it's weird. Uh, so I get where you're coming from because it makes it sort of hard to evaluate. And do you, but when a patient, so let's say I'm a patient and I come into the clinic, what's the step-by-step progress you do to sort of evaluate to, make me feel like a person and not a patient of yours um I think from like the very first step sort of talking to somebody really about how they feel and what their experiences have been rather than focusing on um you know a diagnosis and kind of pathologizing somebody I think it's about helping somebody to feel empowered so educating somebody that actually their symptoms are symptoms of a bigger problem um and that there is an opportunity to develop better coping tools so that you become empowered to heal yourself really you know a clinician's job is not to fix somebody it's in my view it's to empower an individual to identify the obstacles between them and the goals that they have and to support them in removing them not for for us to do it um i think you can't drag people through recovery you have to stand with them while they walk that path. And I think that's hopefully what gets communicated um, throughout that journey of clinic. How long are the programs for, or how long do you have the people? Is it however long they need, or is it more? Yeah, it's for however long they need. And the intensity of the program that they undertake would change over a period of time so it might start off fairly intensive and as they're improving and they're becoming more confident then you reduce it down in line with their progression um have you how have you felt during this crisis with the clinic has it been like has your uh, has the clinic been uh, sort of affected at all Uh, no it hasn't we've we've um our clients our existing clients when we went into lockdown 
I think went through a period of transition and it was challenging for their face-to-face groups and sessions to be transferred to a remote system um and some of them found that more difficult than others um to deal with but we also have a coexisting online service so we treat people remotely and for those people they've carried on having treatment remotely um and are benefiting from that yeah so you've survived Uh, we've survived yeah yeah that's great um how have you seen sort of uh within because we talked about meditation and you work that into sort of your or to the clinic and through that because have you seen there been any sort of shift towards a more mindfulness uh way of dealing with mental health at all Um, I think there are mindfulness um, programs now in our National Health Service, yeah. um, mm-hmm, certainly. And I think there is a lot more conversation now about how people are able to self-heal a bit more. But I still feel like it's in its infancy and, and it would be nice to see that develop a bit more so that we are as a kind of every human being has a sense of their own ability to empower themselves to remain mentally well and balanced. Yeah. Um, you also spoke, or I, I spoke actually, <laughs> about the holistic treatment model in the beginning that you've had as a dream to implement that now you have as a program, right? In yeah. the clinic. Exactly. Uh, can you explain a bit how it works for the people who don't know how a holistic treatment model works? So when we're, when we're assessing a, a person and their needs, we're considering everything. We're considering any physical healing that they might need to undertake. We're considering a kind of what spiritual journey that person might want to explore um, and how we're able to assist with the minimization of destructive coping strategies as well. So it's a kind of uh, a very broad approach at helping somebody to heal kind of on every level really and bringing in a kind of fractured person into one whole being so by attending to all these different things we're helping somebody to connect body mind soul so they feel like a whole person again or for the first time yeah how would you explain like a spiritual journey for for someone who usually because before I started meditating and even still today I hear from other people that meditation can be very like woo woo very hippie and those types of things how would you explain spirituality from a non sort of like it's not about god or the universe I I think it's spirituality is just about connecting to a sense that there is something greater than ourselves Um, and from from my perspective, on a, almost a very scientific level, you know, we are all energy. We are all having human experience, but we are all energy, and in and as such, we're all connected. And I think we're encouraged very much culturally to see ourselves physically as very different, and across the world to consider our needs as very different. But actually, fundamentally, we all want to be loved and to have love in our lives. And I think when we when we really break it down to at that base level, um, I think being spiritual is just being connected to that um, sense of humility, uh, a recognition that our 
everything that we do matters that our behaviors matter that they have an impact and and being mindful of that i think yeah i think that's the kind of the highest level of recovery you can get to really is when you are able to connect with the spiritual sense of yourself and context of that in the world yeah um do you have you ever struggled uh and if so with what in your mindfulness practice like your personal mindfulness practice yeah i think i run a business and i think managing that historically and prioritizing my own self-care took some fine-tuning um and not being swept up in running a business and keeping the heart of the organization sort of true um was was challenging um it's a lot easier now uh, because I've just learned how to do that but I think everything is just yeah an opportunity to learn and grow and I'm quite willing to to reflect on things and and try and use my experiences in a in a beneficial way mm. because the the thing I've realized is that when when I first started it was so hard to keep it a daily uh a daily thing to be mindful and have a mindful practice uh but then i i read about this thing called 2190 which is it takes 21 days to build a habit and 90 days to build a lifestyle and then i stuck to that for 90 days and then of course i started meditating now i can't skip a meditation almost so um do you have any like sort of tips or tricks uh, for anyone who wants to start meditating and how to sort of stay consistent with it? Yeah, just um, start small. Don't expect yourself to be able to sit in a dark room for an hour in silence. I think people set themselves absolutely mammoth tasks and then they fail and feel defeated. So I think it's much better to um, set yourself something that feels really manageable. And if what's manageable for you initially is to commit to five minutes a day, then that's okay because you can build on that. But set yourself something that's achievable. Think about your day in advance and when that's likely to to be possible. Um, and then make a commitment to yourself, you know, to honor that um, is a good place to start, I think. Yeah, because the thing I, I saw a video about um, meditation when I did some research uh, and it was with uh, Emily Fletcher and she said that if you sit down and think uh, I'm gonna not think for the next uh, five or ten minutes or however long you decide to meditate uh, it usually goes something like uh, okay I'm gonna sit still oh I'm hungry oh that was a thought okay I'm hungry I'm gonna go eat um and then i saw that someone said that meditation essentially when it like came um came to be it was uh meditation was defined as nothingness and thinking of no thing do you think that is sort of lost within our culture culture or do you think that is sort of not what meditation is in the western world um, I think meditation practice is called meditation practice for a reason. I think it's constantly you're trying to do something, you're trying to create a peaceful space for yourself and your mind. And um, I think 
meditation is being increasingly kind of accepted from a western perspective but it it's something that like you say still has a sort of stigma attached to it but increasingly i think people are embracing that um and i think just allowing yourself an opportunity to try is really good enough even if it's difficult we're so overstimulated just having a bit of space to be still and quiet is a good thing yeah um yeah i don't think i had much more okay we covered a lot actually uh hopefully um this will help someone to listen to um i usually this is my mindset when i do actually anything on like when it comes to podcasts and videos it's always like the one person you want to shift uh because expecting having a lot of people to listen to uh you is so much harder than Mm -hmm. dealing with at least i got one person to take something out of it and that's very empowering uh to think about and i can see that you've helped a lot of people uh and it's very appreciative of what you're doing still uh and for anyone listening uh i'll link down to emmy's youtube channel instagram below and her website and the clinic if you're interested in looking at her work uh anything else you want to say before we end today's podcast no just thank you so much for having me and for asking you know asking me on it's been lovely to talk to you yeah thank you yourself uh don't forget to follow and uh leave a review of the podcast if you want to thank you for listening